Don't Waste Your Life, Talk 3, The Purpose of Church. Now, I don't know if uh, you read um, business training guru books, um, but if you did read them, the one person you would have heard of was Steve Covey, uh, who's died recently, actually. And the one illustration you might have come across is this one, uh, which is Steve Covey's jar. So what he did was, to his kind of business people, what he used to do um, is get three sort of jars uh, or actually one jar and he would fill it with stones and he'd ask these clever people is that jar full what's the answer yes, yes. well thanks for the right answer the jar is full and then he'd put some pebbles in it and he'd say is the jar full and everybody would say yes and then he'd say well no it's not full and then he'd pack the, the the other bits in with sand and then he would do it with water and you get the idea what is the point uh, what was the lesson um, well, you could interpret it two ways. You could say, well, he's teaching me that there is more to life I can always cram in. Um, so you, kind of, you, know, you get a little bit more in and there's, a, there's always a little bit more to life. But that wasn't the lesson he was, he was teaching. Uh, anyone want to have a guess what was the lesson? Business people? Personal organization? I'll tell you. Get the important things in place first. Get the important things in place first. If you don't get the rocks in right at the start, you never will. Because the jar will become full of sand and pebbles and water. And once the sand and pebbles and water are in, you will never be able to get the rocks in. So his lesson to the business people was get the important things in place first. Now, if you're in business, I guess that might be your team or your finance or something like that. Now, we're not in business. What is the lesson for us? The lesson for us is get church into your life first. Get church into your life first. For some Christians, church is not one of the rocks in the jar. It's among the pebbles or it's among the sand. It's one thing you fit in where there is nothing more important in the way. So, the sports team, the last-minute essay, the housemates, the sleepover, these are the things that get filling the jar, and then church comes along and you've got to fill in the gaps. And of course, no Christian would ever say church is second best, but actually by our practice, we proclaim that church is second best. And so there are plenty of Christians in this world who will do anything rather than miss church but there are plenty of people who will miss church so that they can do anything else. But if the pebble is not, the rock is not in place first, other things will crowd out church. You can guarantee it. And it gets worse as life gets, uh, as you get older, because more and more things come to fill the jar. Now, tonight I want to persuade you, I want to try and persuade you that the essential rock, one of the most essential rocks you can get in place as a Christian, or to have a, a life of fruitful living to serve Jesus, is a lifelong commitment to a local church. So notice how I said that, not just coming to a local church, as one of those things that Christians do on Sundays, a lifelong commitment to being an active member of a local church. I want to try and persuade you that that is one of the most significant things, if not the significant thing you can do in life. Now, you might be listening to this and say, well, I already know that. I know I'm a Christian. I know Christians go to church. Of course, it's going to be a, a rock. But I then want to ask you, why? 
Why is that the case? Well, here it is. Here's a thing for you to fill in. Church is very simple. It's basically the gathering of those God is gathering for the gathering. That's, that's what we're going to learn tonight. The church is the gathering of those God is gathering for the gathering. If you don't know how to spell gathering, you're in trouble, aren't you? In other words, the local church is the means and the end to what God is doing in this world. It is the means and the end to what God is doing in this world. The church is actually the story that the Bible teaches. Uh, it may be that you've kind of got used to the idea that church is one of, one of the many things that the Bible teaches. It's one of the many things that the Christian is to do. I want to tell you actually the church is the thing that the Bible teaches. That's what I'm going to show you in three steps. Now there's a lot we could say here that we're not going to have time to. We're going to just start through the Bible beginning, end and then middle uh, to show you. So firstly, God's aim gathered at the beginning. I wonder if you could pick up your Bible and turn to Genesis 1 uh, right at the beginning. And as we do that, it's important to remember uh, that Genesis uh, 1 and 2 are not a kind of historical kind of report, like a factual kind of report on uh, what happened at creation. They're not, they're not so much like an eyewitness report. They're really telling us the why more than the how. There are things they tell us about how, but they're more telling us the why. And Genesis 1-2 are telling us the purpose that God has in creation. Now, what is that purpose? Why did God create? Well, have a look at um, chapter 1, verse 26 which is the sort of climax of the first account of creation in Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is obviously a key point in the Bible story. God makes humankind and the writer of Genesis makes a comment on that event on that event the comment is there in verse 27 the event in verse 26 he says God makes man in his image what does that mean to be made in God's image well I think verse 27 explains verse 26 the context is the key God makes man in his image and then we're given this con comment that God makes humanity male and female. You see that? So if an alien came down on your way home from real food tonight and you bumped into an alien, you know, the green man with the sort of uh, tentacles on his head or whatever, and the alien said, you know, what are you? I wonder what you would say. Would you say I'm a human being? Well, that's okay, but actually it's more correct biblically to say... I'm a man or a woman because you are one of those two things. It is binary. That is how God has created us. And that sexual differentiation, men and women, points to something that is very, very fundamental within humanity. And that is that we can relate to each other as different people. We can relate to each other as different people. And I know I'm a man only when I relate to a woman. Or women it's how we learn about ourselves it's how we see the differences by looking at the other sex now you see this supremely of course in marriage where if you just glance over to 224 which is the sort of the second climax of the second account of creation you see that the man and the woman become one flesh 
in the marriage, 2.24. But it's also true of humanity in general that we can relate to each other in a particular way because God has made us male or female. Now just think about that. If God had just made one sex, it'd be different, wouldn't it? If he'd just made male, just made female, the relationships that we have within humanity would be different. Now come back to verse 27. What the writer is saying is that as we are made male and female, we are imaging God. We are reflecting something of the image of God. So you look at male and female, you look at humanity, you actually learn something about God. What do we learn about God? We learn that God is a God of relationships. God is Trinity, his Father, Son and Spirit. He, exi- he has existed from all eternity in a perfect relationship, Father, Son and Spirit. God is a relational God. He loves to love, he loves to relate. And now he builds that ability to relate into the human race. Now turn to chapter two and notice how this theme of relationships develops into the creation. 2 verse 8, God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. Sorry, the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So God creates this beautiful world, a paradise, a perfect world. But rather than tending the world himself, look at what he does. He places the man in the garden to take care of it, to grow the world, to develop it for God's glory. But now notice something else, that the man is not going to do this on his own. Look down at verse 18 and notice as the creation of the woman is narrated, she is called the man's helper. And so we then come to the first marriage at the end of the chapter. Man and woman relating to each other, serving God in the garden. And so what are we looking at here in Genesis 1 and 2? We are, of course, looking at the first church. It might sound strange if you've never thought of it like that, but it's obvious, really, when you trace it through to the end of the Bible, as we're about to do. Here is a very small but perfect church. Adam and Eve and God. Adam and Eve living together, walking together perfectly in harmony in the Garden of Eden. And what we see here, therefore, is the blueprint of the great church that God is going to create by the end of the world, by the end of the story. Because God is a God of relationships. He doesn't want just two people in his church. He wants a worldwide gathering of people to share his paradise with him, to live with him and glorify God. And so he commands Adam and Eve to grow the church, to multiply, to reproduce. And sure enough, they do. But Genesis chapter 3 And you know the story. God said there is a boundary, that he will be God, that he will give orders and commands. There is a single prohibition in the context of all sorts of permissions. The prohibition not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate the fruit. They overstepped the boundary. They rejected God. They said, no, we will rule our place. We don't want God to be ruling over us. We will make up the rules. And so... That first perfect church was broken. I look at Genesis 3.23. Here is the first breaking up of the first church. The Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. Scattering reverses the gathering that God has done at the beginning. 
Well, the people then went out into the world scattered. If you were to read on from Genesis 4 to 11, you'll see a spiral of sin and curse and violence and scattering as sin spreads. It's a story of shame and wandering and homelessness and disintegration. It climaxes in the Tower of Babel, where God scatters humanity through languages. Have you ever been to a foreign country and not been able to speak the language? And you feel alienated, and that's God's purpose. He did that deliberately. He deliberately created different cultures, different ethnic groups, different languages, so that we remain scattered. It is actually God's judgment on us. And therefore, there is this great brokenness in our world. We don't relate to God in the garden. We don't relate to each other perfectly. The harmony of the first church has been broken, and that is what our world is like, isn't it? We do not enjoy harmonious relationships. We're scattered from each other. Our friendships are broken. We're scattered from God and each other. And unless we understand that and how tragic that is, we will never be able to appreciate the ordinary local church. Let me explain why. Turn to the end. Revelation 7. And we're going to see God's achievement. We're going to see what church is going to look like right at the end. I want to say the end, I mean the end. <laughs> the end of everything, when God ends history and brings about his new creation. So Revelation chapter 7. Uh, this is easy, isn't it? Sometimes we flip around the Bible, but this is easy. Beginning and end. Revelation 7. Here is a picture on the last day when Jesus is going to return and we're going to see revealed what God has been doing throughout history. Look at it. It's very, very impressive. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Sorry, it's on the sheet as well. We're going to jump down to verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, those in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what do we see at the end of the Bible story, at the end of history? One heavenly church. Notice a couple of things about it. Firstly, notice who is there. We're told people from every tribe and nation. So the whole of humanity that has been broken and scattered has been regrouped. The exile has been reversed. The story ends happily. Secondly, where are they? They are gathered around the throne of the victorious Christ. So the people who are there on the last day are not sort of religious people or people who have joined a social religious club or anything like that. These are the people who Jesus has gathered to himself. They're from all tribes and they're there because of Jesus. They are there because they have recognized in this life that Jesus is God's king and they bowed to him. The future of the universe belongs to Jesus and his people. That's who's there in the final gathering. And thirdly, notice how they got there. That we're told that their robes were white and they've been made white by the blood of the Lamb. This is part of the imagery of the book of Revelation. If you wash your robes in blood, what colour do they become? They don't become white, but they do become white 
if the blood is the blood of Christ that has been shed for the forgiveness of sins and the whiteness is a symbol of your sinless forgiven perfection they have believed the message of the gospel in life and therefore they are there around the throne at the end because of Jesus' death on the cross. He has gathered his people. He has won his bride by his own death on the cross. This is what Jesus says elsewhere. Have a look at John 10, 14. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles there. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So how do you get into that church at the end, that gathering around Christ? You believe in Christ now. You repent and believe and have your sins forgiven. And so the barriers that were put up in Genesis 3 are now closed and withdrawn in Christ. Only Jesus can bring us a perfect relationship with God. I notice that in this church there is a horizontal and a vertical mending. You see, if I think that I don't want God to be God over me, it's because I think I really should be God of my world. What happens if I bump into you and you think you should be God of your world? We're going to clash, aren't we? I can't be friends with somebody else who thinks they're going to be God of my world if I think I'm going to be God of my world. And that is what our world is like. But if I'm reconciled to God, then I can be reconciled to you as well. And so there is this perfect harmony in the church. Well, there's God's aim. He created the world for people. He created the world for church. That's what I meant when I said this is a big, this is a big story. And at the end, he's achieved it by Jesus' death on the cross. He's gathered a people to himself because of Jesus Christ. Well, what is happening now? How does that help us to understand the history, the time that we're in now? Well, let me show you. What it means is that God is gathering his people right now through local churches and into local churches. A couple of steps. Firstly, look at Mark 1 on the sheet. And we see that Jesus' earthly ministry was a gathering ministry by the preaching of the gospel. Mark 1, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So the gathering that is happening now happens by the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus says, repent and believe, and he gathers people to follow him. But secondly, over the page, if you turn to Luke 24, we'll see that this same mission of Jesus has been handed to the ordinary Christian which we continue right now. Luke 24. Someone wants to shout out a page number, that would be helpful. 1062. 1062, thank you. <coughs> Luke 24, 1062. And pick it up in verse 44. This is right at the end of the, of the gospel. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be written that is fulfilled about sorry, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, "This is what was written. 
The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send to you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. In verse 44, Jesus says that everything that has been written in the past has been fulfilled in him. So the whole Old Testament has come to fulfillment in him. But look at verse 46, where he breaks it down into three events. The first event is his suffering and death. The second event is his rising from the dead. And what's the third event in verse 47? It's the mission of the church to the world. So I don't know if you're a to-do list type person, but if Jesus were, he would be saying, right, the Old Testament gave me three things to do. Suffer and rise, tick. Sorry, suffer on the cross, tick. Rise from the dead, tick. Third thing, Jesus can't tick it off yet. The third thing the Old Testament promised, repentance and forgiveness of sins, preached to all nations, Jesus cannot yet tick that off, why? because he has given that to the church. That is our mission. And therefore, if you're a Christian this morning, this is where you jump into the story. The salvation work of Jesus is not finished. The gathering of Jesus in the world is not complete. He still intends to reach thousands and millions and perhaps billions of people in the world who are facing judgment but who will come into that last church gathering because they will believe the message of the cross, the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, if you're a Christian this evening, you get to be part of that mission of Christ. You get to finish his salvation work in the world. And what happens when the gospel is preached and Jesus gathers, what does it look like? It looks like the local church. Turn to Hebrews 12, last place we're going to turn. <coughs> Page number would be great. One, two, one, one. Thank you. One, two, one, one. Hebrews chapter 12. This little passage. I think is a very important one for understanding the church. It brings together everything we've seen. It's a very tight little description of church. There's a lot we could say about it, but just let's read it and then make a couple of comments. Hebrews 12, 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. It's a long sentence, rehearsing the experience of Israel at Mount Sinai, meeting God, gathering around God. But verse 22, but you have come, to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, can you see what he's saying in verse 22 to these living Christians? 
He's not talking to people who've died and gone to heaven. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, as you came to Christ, you came to this heavenly gathering that we're going to see one day in the new creation, but now we see it glimpsed in the ordinary local church. As we gather together in churches on earth, believers washed by his blood, gathered around the risen Christ who we can't see, but we believe by faith through his word, we are being given a little glimpse of the bigger heavenly reality of which we are part. Now, let me sum it up like this. Who is that pretty little girl? Anyone know? She is Lucy, our youngest daughter, age three. Now, this is actually on her third birthday. She's now uh, in first year at university, so she's grown up a lot. She's still very cute, I must say. Um, Here is Lucy on her third birthday. Now, one day, around that time, uh, Lucy had borrowed her brother's farm toys. Anyone have those little kind of toy farms? came out from under the bread and she, bed and she just kind of had a little quiet play while her brother was at school. And I came in and, and looked at what she'd done. And what she'd done is she'd put all the horses into a little kind of group, little kind of collection of horses. And they're all just standing there um, in a nice little kind of group looking in one direction. I said, Lucy, what is that? And she said, horsey church. Horsey church. I said, why is it horsey church? Because this is what our three-year-old said. Because they're gathered together. See, church is so simple that a three-year-old can express it. The essence of church is gathering. The gathering that God is doing for the gathering at the end. So we've covered a lot of ground tonight. There's a lot more we could have said from Hebrews 12 and Revelation 7 and Genesis 1. But the essence of it is so simple that a three-year-old can get it. God is gathering a people who will be with him in eternity. And where do you see that happening right now? You see it in the ordinary local church. You get a glimpse of it. So let's apply this. Why love the church? Three things very briefly. Firstly, love the church because it's good for the world. Love the church because it's good for the world. Ephesians 3 verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, how does God provide for the world to know what he is doing in history? Gives us the church. Because in the church, you see the the DNA, the blueprint, the model of what he's going to do in the future. And so that quote that Joe gave at the beginning, God has entrusted to the local church the witness concerning himself in the world, which is a scary thing. It makes us want to say, well, how are we doing with that witness, doesn't it? But it means that the world needs the church. The world needs to see that Christians are committed to this. The world needs to see that here is something special that you don't see anywhere else. There was a letter sent into the Lancaster Guardian a few years ago, and 
somewhat, there was some kind of debate happening about kind of multiculturalism and that kind of thing. And someone was saying how all the different kind of ethnic groups kind of keep themselves to themselves. You know, you've got the sort of Chinese community and the Polish community and there was a gypsy community, and all, all these little ethnic groups kind of not mixing. And someone wrote into the Lancaster Guardian and said, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone could set up some kind of thing like a restaurant or something where all these different ethnic groups could, could kind of gather together and, and meet each other and get on? And I wrote back, I don't often write into the newspaper, I wrote back and said, look, dear sir, it's church. That's where you're going to see it. And that is the only place you're going to see it. That is the only place on earth you're going to see those barriers broken down because only the gospel of Jesus has the power to break those barriers down. And therefore, love the church because it's good for the world. It tells the world what God is doing in eternity. Secondly, love the church because it's good for others. See, many people arrive at church with the same sort of attitude that you might arrive at a cinema or shopping centre. Not necessarily expecting to be entertained, but expecting to choose on the basis of what you want to get out of it. Coming to church with expectations that this is going to fulfil my needs, and with that mindset. Now, of course, come to church with the expectation it's going to fulfil your needs, that's right. But come to church with the mindset that you're here to serve other people. Have a look at Hebrews uh, 10 on the sheet. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, come to church. Don't stop coming to church because the end is coming the end is approaching, the day when Christ will return. There's a, day, there's a danger. Every one of us faces a danger that before Christ returns, we will give up the Christian life. How are we going to prevent that? How are we going to stop giving up the Christian life? He says, look at it. Verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. But the particular thing to notice is how he puts it. He could have said, couldn't he, make sure you come to church, otherwise you might fall away from the Christian life. But he puts it the other way, doesn't he? He says, make sure you come to church, otherwise other people might give up the Christian life. Consider how we may spur one another on so that other people don't give up the Christian life. So if you want a reason to come to church when you really, really don't feel like it, and we all have those times, don't we? When we just think, actually, there's something better on, I stayed up late last night, I didn't get that essay done, there's this thing with the society are doing and so on and so forth. If you want just one single reason to be here, not just next week, not just the week after, not just the next 30 weeks, not just the next three years, but for the rest of your life, to be someone who, for whom the rock of church is really in place, you want just one single reason, come for other people, come so that you encourage other people, you have an opportunity to spur them on. As uh, someone says, every time you walk into church, you're wearing a big T-shirt that says, you matter, and I want to be part of your encouragement. Even if you say nothing, your presence here is enough. How to do this practically? Let me give you 10 quick ideas how to do this. Well, firstly, be there. Be there. Watch how many Sundays get taken up by other things. 
See, if you're an undergraduate student, you're only here for 30 weeks, mostly. Start counting the times you're away. There's that house party. Maybe there's a couple of weeks for sickness. Maybe allow one week for missing the bus or having a puncture or sleeping in. And maybe there's a society commitment. And then you go home for great uncle Bulgaria's 101th birthday. And then maybe the essay deadline. Well, that's seven weeks missing. You're only here for 20-something weeks. That isn't enough to be fully engaged and fully committed. Watch. Be somebody who makes a lifetime habit of just being there unless you really can't do it. Because how can you encourage people if you're not here? Number two, prepare for Sundays. Go to bed early. Read the passage. Saturday night is not the night for staying up till three o'clock in the morning doing whatever computer games or late night homework or whatever. Get to bed. Get up early. Be here so you can give your best self to the people around you. Three, Make it a habit to pray for church. Pray for the word to be at work. Pray for new people. Ask Joe for some prayer points uh, for if, if you don't know what to pray for or you, you, for the church more widely or ask your real food leader. Write them down. Pray for them. Number four, love people who are different to you. Remember the Lancaster Guardian. If only we could have this place. Well, here it is. Can I challenge you just to spend, just next week, just talk to one person who is different to you, different age group, different gender, different background, just talk to one person, have a brief conversation, ask how they became a Christian, and you'll be seeing a little glimpse. It might not fill you with a warm, fuzzy feeling, you might not become friends for life, but you'll be seeing a little glimpse of what God is doing in this world. Fifthly, become an active partner in the church. If you haven't yet been invited to Newish, and you think that this is likely to be where you'll stick around, then see me or Emma, my wife, after, and we'll invite you to Newish uh, uh, two Sundays' time. Not the next Sunday, but the Sunday after, where we'll just explain what the vision of the church is. After that, come to Startup, which is a five-week course uh, where you, you learn what a partner of a church is after Christmas. Become an active partner. Number six, give financially. Christians are commanded to be generous in the New Testament and generally the local church is where we direct our giving so that we can partner together practically in the mission that God has given us to do. Give financially. Seventh, get your hands dirty serving in practical ways. Every time you serve, whether it's uh, um, cleaning or setting up or whatever, you're actually helping the word of God to go out. You're freeing people up to do that work. You're making church a more welcoming place. Get your hands dirty serving in practical ways. Eight, grow in godliness yourself. That is the greatest gift you can give to any church, to be somebody who is growing in Christ-like character. Nine, welcome new people. The time that I know someone has kind of settled in church is when they stop talking about they and they start talking about we. It's a big change. When someone's talking about their church and they say they, it's not their church, is it? When they talk about we, I know they've, they've become a partner of the church. They've, they've settled. As you welcome new people, welcome them to your church as if you would welcome them to your home. And make an effort with new people. Look for the old lady who's just turned up. Uh, or the young mum who's got three children and doesn't know where the toilets are. All those sorts of things you can do. Ten, pray about where to sit. Pray about where to sit. Why do I tell you that? Is God going to kind of reveal the place? It's that uncomfortable pew in 3B or whatever it is? No. Because praying about where to sit will develop a mindset of other person's centeredness. 
how you walk into church. Am I looking to sit with my friends? Am I looking to kind of sit with people I know and I can chat to? Ask God to let you sit with somebody that you can serve by being an encouragement to them. If you do that every week, you'll soon change your mindset about church. Thirdly, love the church in order to make it to the end. Love the church in order to make it to the end. See, does a Christian have to come to church? Well, no. It's not what makes you a Christian. We don't want to adopt the Roman Catholic error of equating church membership with salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, not by church attendance. But the New Testament is clear that we are saved only if we keep going to the last day. We will be saved only if we persevere in faith to the last day. And one of the primary means God uses to make us make it to the last day is the church. And so have a look at Hebrews 3 on the sheet. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at the beginning. And if you're not a Christian, here's the implication for you. You must join a church too. You might think, well, I'm not a Christian. Why would I join a church? No, Jesus is calling you to join him, to recognize him as God's king. He is gathering a people to himself who are forgiven. And so if you're not yet a Christian, Jesus is calling you to join his church. And I say that is the most significant thing that you can do. Because it's the church that is what God is doing in this universe. It's the church that will be there in eternity. And if you're a Christian, the challenge, as we said right at the start, is to learn to love the local church, to put that rock in place. It is, as uh, Andy said this morning, if you remember, a very ordinary thing to do. But it is, for all its flaws, for all its imperfections, a sign of what God is doing in the world. So like a number of things in the Christian life, you don't have to go to church. You get to go. So enjoy church. Start enjoying it. Make a lifetime of loving the church and being part of what God is doing. I'm going to pray the prayer at the bottom. This is a good pray, prayer to pray. I thought I'd print it out so you can take it home and perhaps uh, stick it in the Bible. And maybe at some point in the week, uh, come back to it and uh, pray it again, having reflected on what we've uh, looked at tonight. So let me uh, just lead us in that, that prayer. Heavenly Father, I admit that I have not been living with Christ as my King, but I've been living my own way. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die for me so that I can be forgiven and so I can be gathered into your people who will be with you forever. Please forgive me. From now on, please help me to live with Jesus at the centre of my life as he builds his church. Amen.